Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations, their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features Dr. David Feliciano, a leader in trauma and acute care surgery, who currently is a clinical professor of surgery at the University of Maryland in Baltimore. Dr. Feliciano gave the Churchill Lecture during the Clinical Congress 2022 on the extraordinary evolution of surgery for abdominal trauma. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. I don't have any disclosures, and I'll just repeat a little bit about Edward D. Churchill. I actually found the book on Amazon, bought it. I'd be embarrassed to tell you how much it costs. But it's a classic, and it's really a diary of uh, his experiences in World War II, not as an active surgeon, but as a true consultant who was dealing with problems in the Mediterranean theater, such as gangrene, post-op wound infections, how much to debride. It's a hard read because it's a very personal diary. And what I found out is that the military moves, hospitals, triage stations, etc., about every other day in a military conflict. But I recommend this to you if you're interested in how things went in World War II. One of the reasons I'm really honored to give this lecture is I come from sort of a military family my father, the real Dr. Feliciano, was a flight surgeon in World War II with the 22nd Bomb Squadron. I was a lieutenant stationed in California, and I took care of CBs during my uh, time there, mobile construction battalions, three, four, five, and 10. One of the great experiences of my life, and I mean that. My youngest son, Doug, was also a lieutenant in the Navy. In his later years in the Navy, he served uh, on the special boat groups and was stationed in Little Creek, Virginia. So needless to say, this is a very meaningful lecture for me to give, and really it's an honor of my father. I'm familiar with a lot of the previous Churchill lecturers who are listed there, and I wanna point out just one, if you will. The person who's been of great, uh, given me a lot of great advice in the last couple of years is actually from the other medical school in Baltimore, and that would be John Cameron, who all of you know, and I saw John last night, and he always says just two words to me, don't retire. <laughs> I also want to thank uh, Peggy Knudsen. Peggy and I met at this meeting 33 years ago and have remained close friends ever since. I am almost sure that the reason I'm standing here today is because of her influence with the Excelsior Surgical Society. My uh, better half is here, Grace Rizicki, who all of you know. Grace did all the slides for me, has been my life companion for the last 32 years. My two children were kind enough to get out of work at home, and David and Douglas are both here today, and I'm very grateful. I do want to mention a few mentors, frankly. The late Peter Mucha founded the Emergency Room Surgical Service in 1977 at the Mayo Clinic. Those of you who think other people invented emergency general surgery don't know your history. I also joined the emergency surgery service at Detroit Receiving Hospital, 
with Drs. Charles Lucas and Anna Ledgerwood, who of course are in the room and have always been great, uh, great supporters. And again, this was an emergency surgical service in 1975. For the past four and a half years, instead of retirement, Tom Scalia saved me, brought me on as faculty at the Shock Trauma Center. The nine figures illustrated on the slide are all full professors of surgery at the University of Maryland. They are all people I've worked closely with or knew prior to my uh, movement to uh, shock trauma. Tom has been a friend for 40 years and in recent years has been much to his chagrin and mine, my personal physician, but that's another story. I wanna dedicate this to Dr. Walter Ingram Walt was the burn surgeon at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta for 30 years and died suddenly two months ago with four children. It's difficult to tell you how important he was to burn victims in the southeastern part of the United States, recognizing there are only two burn units in the entire state of Georgia. So I dedicate this also to Dr. Ingram and his children. This lecture came about because I'm kind of a focused person, and I don't know anything about economics, philosophy, social issues. I just know about surgery, which I've done for 45 years. So we're gonna talk about the entities listed on the slide there. I thought this was an interesting quote related to the training of surgeons. And this lecture is actually in opposition of this, where you learn everything by being in the operating room, et cetera but you need to start somewhere for the younger surgeons in the room. And I'm gonna try and go over the last 100 years or so of how we've developed what we now do in abdominal trauma surgery. It's very interesting if you go back in surgical history that some of the great names in, in our history, such as Celsus, Galen, and Albuquesis, discuss what to do with the warriors who had been eviscerated. And when treating evisceration from slash wounds, sword wounds, if you will, all three recommended enlarging the incision, repairing any colotomies, and closing the incision. Why they would not repair small bowel is unclear to me from a lot of reading. Now, the, mis the mystery is that after these reports, a good eight centuries went by before people started operating on patients with abdominal trauma. If you know your American history, in 1881, President James Garfield, our 20th president, survived an assassination attempt with a gunshot wound to the right lower posterior thorax with a bullet ending up in the left upper quadrant. For 79 days, he lay there in agony with wounds to the pancreas, et cetera, et cetera. And a variety of famous consultants put their finger in his bullet track to palpate it, eventually it became infected, and he then died in agony. Now this was after the introduction of general anesthesia. There were reports around this time of successful laparotomies, but what happened was the American Surgical held a symposium six years later, and the consensus of opinion finally in the United States was that we need to treat penetrating abdominal gunshot wounds with laparotomy. So let's talk about the liver first. It's a big organ. A lot of us are interested in how to repair it. It's got a huge blood supply, 
Venous drainage is posterior. It contains bile ducts, which complicate repair. And there are very few American trauma surgeons in the current generation who have had extensive experience in any kind of hepatic surgery, and that poses a real problem. If you look at the historic mortality for hepatic trauma, which is the column to your far right, you can see a big decrease in mortality in World War II, appropriate for this lecture, by Gordon Matting and the second auxiliary surgical group. And then you can see the current mortality in one of my series and the late Dave Richardson, where the overall mortality in operative hepatic trauma is about 9 or 10%, and true deaths related to the liver are under 5% now. So look at the top of that slide and look how far we've come, and that's really in 100 years. Uh, what's really interesting is they had the same concerns when they started operating on the liver for trauma that we have, that is fear of hemorrhage. And this is a dog experiment by uh, Carl Beck in Chicago in 1902, where he did an experimental lobectomy on the dog, hepatic lobectomy, and then to staunch the flow of blood, he sewed the open liver edge to the abdominal incision. Now, we don't do that anymore, fortunately, but this was really exemplified the fear of hemorrhage that people had when dealing with this huge organ. One of the best papers ever on hepatic trauma is William Schroeder's paper from 1906, and he showed the techniques in use in the early part of the previous century, mostly taken from the European surgeons, and that was intrahepatic gauze packing sewn in place. Now, none of you have ever done that, but that, this technique was used all the way through World War II, as many of you know. Interestingly enough, Schroeder also talked about a gunshot wound in which you couldn't stop parenchymal hemorrhage. He put in a balloon, intraparenchymal balloon, blew it up and put a rigid rod next to it, and then casually mentioned in the article, all bleeding stopped, I removed it at seven days, the patient did fine. So none of us in the room developed balloon tamponade. This was from a century ago. All of you know about J. Hogarth Pringle from Glasgow, Scotland. Hopefully all the younger surgeons in the room have read his famous paper about using the Pringle maneuver to slow hemorrhage while you're doing an hepatic repair. But for those of you who have not read this classic paper, he also describes how to mobilize the liver, the use of blunt needles, how to suture the liver, and of course, once again, intrahepatic packing. In World War II, again, Gordon Matting wrote this book after the war, but really showed that the things they did in World War II, suture hepatography, intrahepatic packing, and debridement, only two of those were really the right thing to do. And, and he was probably mostly responsible for taking out intrahepatic packing from our armamentarium for these injuries. It's just not used anymore. Now, we've had a lot of techniques used with liver trauma and then abandoned, as I just mentioned, during and since World War II. Intrahepatic packing, you'll laugh, but when I was an intern at the Mayo Clinic in 1970, one of my most vivid memories serving in the ICU was watching the chief resident pull the gauze packing out of the patient's liver through a hole in the right upper quadrant and watching the patient's blood pressure do this. So even in 1970, people were still doing intrahepatic packing. It has now been truly abandoned. Lobectomy had been abandoned. 
because it's a big operation for non-experienced liver surgeons. In Gene Moore's survey in 1984, only 4% of patients in the United States were being treated with this. And hepatic artery ligation in Gene's survey, only 2%. So these are techniques that were heavily used, as I'll describe for you, but then abandoned. This is what Dr. Madding said about intrahepatic packing. I'll summarize it quickly in the interest of time. It causes a lot of problems. It traps necrotic tissue. It traps bile, so you get intrahepatic bilomas. The pressure causes further necrosis of liver tissue, et cetera. And this was in 1955. So what about hepatic lobectomy? Well, again, you really don't want your new trauma attending who's never had an HPB fellowship doing an hepatic lobectomy in a patient with a pressure of 80. And the mortality during most of my career, the early career, was in the range of 20 to 60% to do hepatic lobectomy for civilian trauma. So it got abandoned, sort of, because my friend Ron Fisher in Houston wrote this interesting paper from the Vietnam conflict called The Rapid Right Hepatectomy in 1971. And this is much of what we still do now, so many years later. You just put on a Pringle maneuver, don't do any hyalur dissection, divide the liver around the area of injury or where you're gonna do your lobectomy with either finger fracture, electrocautery, or the blunt handle of the scalpel. If you, go, if, uh, you look at the previous picture, the assistant compresses the raw edge until the exposed vessels are oversewn. And a technique that's uh, foreign to a lot of younger surgeons, you can actually ligate the hepatic veins inside the liver before you complete the resection. And this is really, again, the way a lot of us have come to do major liver resections when less than that will not control the hemorrhage. Many of you have heard of selective hepatic artery ligation. This was popularized by Truman Mays at the University of Louisville. Heavily overused, as you can see. 17% of all hepatic injuries at Louisville General had this operation in, in the years that are listed. In my series at Ben Taub Hospital in Houston, 0.6%. For this reason, Dr. Mays gets kind of a dark cloud over his reputation, and I'd like to remove that today. He wrote some brilliant papers on hepatic trauma, how to do lobectomies, how to do segmentectomies. He studied the blood supply of the liver, and he made major contributions to the treatment of hepatic trauma. What are the standard techniques we've used over uh, much of my career? Entering the liver, hepatotomy with finger fracture and selective ligation, viable omental pack, resectional debridement, again, with selective vascular ligation, and then perihepatic, not intrahepatic packing, balloons, and of course, the atriocaval shunt. Now, entrance into the liver to do selective uh, hepatic vessel ligation was really popularized by one of my dearest friends in the world, Dr. Leon Pachter, who's pictured there. The dates to the right are his presentations and publications at major surgical meetings, the American, the Southern, describing how to do hepatotomy, illustrated to your left. The omental pack, of course, was popularized by several people, but in particular, Harlan Stone, the second picture, Harlan died on April 7th. He was one of my mentors, just a brilliant iconoclast 
and we all miss him. And you can see the omental pack after sort of a partial lobectomy in the middle there. But these two individuals should get a lot of credit for how they moved hepatic trauma management along. Resectional debridement is a sort of an interesting technique. The picture to the top is a close-range shotgun wound to the liver. It's above the hilum, which made it a lot easier. For the younger surgeons in the room, you simply mark the liver capsule with either the bovie or something, and then use finger fracture and just come straight around the injured area. Don't go into the injured area. Go where the vessels and ducts are selectively clipped or ligated and it's easy to do because they're intact. Peripatic packing, the data are really interesting. You can see on the slide, the survival after peripatic packing in all those reviews from 1976 to 2012 was two out of three people survived it. I mean, there are people who hate packing. It's like too much of a compromise. Get a grip. If you have a coagulopathy and you need to do this, do it. Things I've learned the hard way, I always put a a vidrape or something underneath the pack if there's any raw suture or, or surface area of the liver so the packs don't stick like the old intrapatic packs. There's an art form to putting packs in. You don't just throw them in. You don't want to compress on the cava. So you really want to move a little bit, usually to the right side, and compress just lateral to the cava. And then I, I'm from a generation that didn't know what a vac was. And I'm just, the paradox is you're trying to stop bleeding and now you're putting suction on the vessels. I, I honestly do not understand this. So just as a compromise, maybe all of you could towel clip the upper one third of the incision and then suck all you want after that, okay? <laughs> there have been some interesting changes in periopatic packing and this is from Baldoni and uh, Salomone di Severio in Italy when Salomone was there. And they have very interesting technique of elaborate packing lateral, anterior, posterior, et cetera. And you can see in the middle of the slide, their, their refined technique, which is what is illustrated here, certainly led to a much decrease in mortality, which I've never tried this, but it, it makes sense, frankly. I was gonna be, be proud of myself and, and list all the papers on balloon tamponade of the liver. And when I got to 25 papers, I said, well, I guess we've explained this pretty well. The picture to your left is the classic red rubber covered with a Penrose drain going through an intrapatic tract. And more recently, the Sensdac and Blakemore tube has been revivified with the esophageal balloon acting as balloon tamponade in the middle of the liver. Now, if I took a survey of how many of you love the atrio cable shunt, no one would raise their hand, right? <laughs> I think it's cool. And we used it in Houston, Ken Maddox, who's uh, sitting right up here in front, John Birch and I, in 18 patients who did not have a cardiac arrest before surgery. And we had a 33% survival. So I think it's gonna be replaced soon, as I'm going to mention, but it did serve a purpose in a highly selected group of patients. Most recently with hepatic trauma, we are doing the things that are listed on the slide I'll touch on each of them except the TIMVE. This is an interesting paper from one of our young faculty at the shock trauma talking about moving patients to a hybrid OR with bad liver trauma, using operation where necessary 
using uh, embolization of the arterial and or venous system. In this particular paper, which has patients with a variety of injuries, at least 44% were in the abdomen, probably most of those with the liver, and the hemorrhage control was excellent. So this is the wave of the future for centers that can afford to buy or make a hybrid OR. The other approaches for the retropatic cave are, of course, on rare, rare occasions, venovenous bypass, and then the bridge balloon that uh, Believ and Dr. Scalia described a couple years ago, which is as described. Just float a balloon up there, blow it up, tamponade the hole in the, in the cava, and then figure out how to get there to sew it. So there have been tremendous changes in liver trauma over my career and actually for the last century. And we're using technology much more. We're avoiding things like the atriocaval shunt. But nothing gets your blood pressure higher as a trauma surgeon than a grade four or five hepatic injury. Oops. The spleen is the next area I'm gonna to touch on. Huge blood supply for an organ the size of your fist, right? And the anatomists have known for years its artery is way too big for this little organ. The branches are actually wider than any other artery in the body if you really talk about all of them. And the spleen eventually comes to contain 25% of the total body lymphoid mass. I rarely use humor in my lectures. I'm just too serious a person. But this is my favorite trauma slide in my entire academic career. The best part is the spleen. Where is it? If you want to know anything about trauma to the spleen and its history, go to this presidential address by Roger Sherman in 1979. He covered an era known from 1549 to 1980. There were 186 references. And this is probably one of the single most brilliant trauma lectures and publications ever. If you haven't read Pringle and you haven't read this, you're not an educated trauma surgeon. Because he went way back, Naples, Ireland, Paris, Russia, Germany, and America. And if you look at the operations that were performed up to 1903, it covers every possible operation on the human spleen, right? Amazing lecture. Now we all know that the spleen is a great filter for senescent red cells and other debris. It's an immune factory and we're still not sure how much influence, influence it has on the immunosuppression system. Now the modern approach has changed now that we recognize it has an immune function. And patients can really be placed into one of two groups as listed. Those who are under observation and may or may not require angioembolization, and those that come to surgery. I'm going to touch on splenorphy, a, a forgotten entity in American trauma centers presently. This incredibly classic report by a surgeon very young in Brazil, Cristo, in 1962 described partial splenectomy for trauma. This was popularized in America by Leon Morgenstern, who was the long-term chief of surgery at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. And just wrote some great stuff about how to do partial splenectomy rather than a, a total. The anatomists, again, have known about the splenic vascular supply for many years. 
This is a, a drawing of the Y or T conformation of the splenic artery. It is so much easier to have a Y conformation, which is about two-thirds of, of spleens, if you're going to do a partial splenectomy. They also have described the spleen as a pile of dinner plates. I mean, the kidney has segments, the liver has segments, and the spleen is truly a pile of dinner plates, if you will, each with its own blood supply, as illustrated here. Take a spleen out, shoot some dye in the uh, uh, main splenic artery, you get perfect blood supply to all the segments. For the junior surgeons in the room, if you have a laceration between these segmental arteries, it's unlikely to bleed. If you have a longitudinal laceration, your chances of success are diminished. Now, I, I am rarely described as a Don Quixote individual, but I do want to make a pitch that the disappearance of splenorphy, as described in this recent lecture by Eric Coe from Stanford using data from two trauma centers, uh, one, the shock trauma center more recently, as you can see, where essentially no splenorphies have been done for four years, and then Ben Taub, where 40% of the splenic operations we did resulted in a repair. So if you have a bad combined injury, this is left kidney and spleen, the mortality is 43 to 53% in the Houston series and the Grady series together. So this is not a case where you would try to repair the spleen even if the holes are small. If you get carried away with yourself with splenic repair, I spent an hour and a half putting on a peritoneal patch, bringing some momentum up, doing a splenorphy, and the chief resident, whose name I still remember, said to me as polite as possible, can I take it out now? <laughs> true, true story. But when, when you see, like from blunt trauma, laceration like this, it looks overwhelming. Oh, yeah, this is a splenectomy. Just get a chromic suture and sew it. For God's sakes, what's the big deal? There are no bile ducts, no poop. You just have to be... You have to be light-handed like you're sewing a kidney. It's not a big deal. If your inferior pole is bashed like this, put Teflon pledget above, Teflon pledget, strip below, some horizontal mattress sutures, and squeeze the snot out of the raw end. And finally, a hemisplenectomy. I've done a few of these. It's not complicated. If you ligate the segmental arteries, you get better definition between what's alive and what's not than you do with the liver, frankly. And you simply cut off that piece, and in this case, we just wrapped it up with some uh, mesh. These are the four series, all dated around 1990, that describe what used to be true in American trauma centers. Pickhart and Gene Moore in Denver, Melinda Molin, Steve Shackford in San Diego, myself in Houston, and Leon Pactor at Bellevue Hospital Center in New York. Percentages in the middle column are the percentage of spleens that were actually repaired by the surgeons, and the column to your far right averages about 2% of those repaired spleens bled postoperatively. A smart surgeon in a good trauma center can fix a spleen with 98% success rate. So I, I, I'm sad that we have lost the art of splenorphy. We have many ways to control splenic bleeding, but if you're in the operating room and you have a stable patient and not a lot of injuries for the younger surgeons, fix the damn thing, will you?
What about the duodenum? Uh, the problems are obvious, shared anatomy with the pancreas, blood vessels everywhere around it, doesn't move, so end-to-end -end repair is, is not possible often. And you have a lot of options that many younger surgeons are not aware about if you're missing a piece. There's not a lot of data in the military regarding duodenal trauma. One would assume that with all the wars that were listed there, an American soldier who was shot in the abdomen for all the reasons you know had a high mortality, right? They weren't wearing body armor in those days, so very little numbers to really talk about. I tried in this lecture to follow things chronologically, but the duodenum's a mess. It's been all over the place. How to treat hematomas, what are the risk factors, how do we treat perforations, what do we do with, I mean, it's endless. And there's so many different options that I think for younger surgeons, it's difficult to know what to do. For example, classic intramural hematoma. Are we really gonna keep a kid on NP, uh, uh, TPN for three weeks in a children's hospital? You can drain these now, as you know, either with CT guide or actual laparoscopy, and it seems to work well. So prolonged hospitalizations may end for this disease, particularly in children. Bill Snyder was a friend of mine when I was at Ben Taub in Houston. He was up at Parkland. Just a great general surgeon, big endocrine practice, wrote extensively on trauma. In a 1980 article out of Parkland, he wrote what he thought were severe injuries to the duodenum, gunshot wound, sure. 75% of the wall is missing, makes total sense. Let me update this for you. Where we are now in terms of factors in duodenal repair are the mechanism is important. Certainly people have retroperitoneal ruptures that don't get diagnosed unless they get a CT right after the crash. And hypotension, of course, is a real problem in gunshot wounds because the duodenum almost becomes an afterthought if the vena cava is injured. And the duodenum itself is the other factor in duodenal repair. Which part? How big's the hole? Are there contusions all around this? Is the wall gone? And is the pancreas injured? The lower patient there is a Sandlot football game, cross-body block, about an 80% rupture. The patient above that is a patient who was discharged from a community hospital and came to the trauma center several days later. That's what a missed rupture of the duodenum looks like. Well, all of you know about the Cattell brash maneuver, a better exposure really for the posterior part of D3 or the D3, D4 junction. Uh, John Brash trained where I trained at the Mayo, received a PhD from the University of Minnesota, had a wonderful career. I found this interesting article when I was looking up duodenal repairs from the late Bob Condon in Milwaukee. Transverse closure can be accomplished if the length of the duodenotomy does not exceed half of the circumference of the duodenum. Has anyone ever thought about this? I mean, I never once, I just, you know, when we were doing sphincterotomies, we made these long, long duodenotomies and never bothered to read this paper. Well, I did ask my boss, Tom Scalia, what he would do with one of the duodenal injuries that we all worry about, the medial wall inside, not the papilla. And these are the things Tom mentioned as options, and I thought they were very interesting. Force a one-layer closure of the inner wall, 
consider pyloric exclusion, et cetera. If you're away from the papilla, do a duodenal resection if the hole is small and do an end to end. And then finally, if you really have a bad big hole, do a rue limb. So where we ended up probably about 40 years ago where people started putting tubes in the duodenum after repair to decompress it as much as, you know, three tubes to your right. And then Dr. Stone and Tim Fabian, who's sitting in the audience when Tim was a fellow at Grady, adopted this triple tube decompression and feeding approach for duodenal injuries. And in 237 patients in a classic article, only one leak occurred. But we just don't do this anymore because putting three new holes in a perforated duodenum doesn't seem to make total sense to many of us. How about the serosal patch? Many of you have seen this drawing in older textbooks where you simply bring the jejunum up, use the outer wall, and sew it directly to the open mucosa of the duodenum. This actually worked in a fair number of patients when I actually looked it up, but this is an article by my good friend Rao Ivaturi talking about all the problems they had post-op in his series and they abandoned it when he was in New York. So I don't recommend doing this, frankly. And then what about patients who are missing the wall? Well, there are the options that are listed and let me illustrate some of these for you, particularly for the ju junior surgeons. And a chapter by Juan Asensio, this is called a mucosal pedicle graph where you borrow a segment of jejunum fillet it open, sew it to the big hole in the duodenum, and then bring the two ends of the jejunum together around that. I have never done this, but it seems to make good sense, mucosa to mucosa, short segmental small bowel resection. The late Erwin Thalb helped popularize this operation, which is probably the operation you should do whenever you have a hole too big to repair, or it looks terrible after you repair it, and that's bringing up a rue limb, mucosa to mucosa. Now, many of you have heard about diversion operations to protect the injured duodenum that you've repaired. We're talking about duodenal repairs that are very narrow, discolored or bruised, or it's been a delayed repair where the patient had a late diagnosis, or it's a bad combined injury, but the Whipple should not be done. And two of those diversion procedures are illustrated here, the triple tube, which I showed you earlier from the University of Colorado, and then an operation where the surgeons, Tom Byrne, Art Donovan, and Al Yellen made up a name of an operation, duodenal diverticulization, vagotomy, entrectomy, tube in the bile duct, tube in the duodenum, et cetera, et cetera. Rarely, rarely used also in the current era. So that gets me to pyloric exclusion. This is the original article by Berg in New York City for duodenal fistulas in patients who had perforated ulcers. And it had nothing to do with trauma at the time. But as all of you know, this is sewing the pyloric muscle ring shut from inside the distal stomach and then bringing up a gastrojejunostomy because you've closed the duodenum. Endoscopy will show your suture when you send these patients for radiology, you have to explain to the radiologist, we've sewed the duodenum shut. That's why there's no dye going through there. 
Now, all my friends and academics, uh, Enrique from Miami, Joe DeBose, one of my close friends, George Velmos at LA County, Dimitri, they just keep beating me up because I push this operation, and I'm tired of it. <laughs> yes, we did overuse this operation in the past. At Baylor, we did over 150 of these, and many of them were not necessary in retrospect. In most big trauma centers now, this is indicated one to three times a year. Grab the pyloric muscle ring once you make the gastrotomy with a Babcock. Use number one proline, not an absorbable suture, not a stapler. And so the slit shut with two rows of suture. Do a post-op upper GI series sometime in the first week to confirm it's still closed. And always check for a helicobacter because you have created an ulcerogenic preparation, theoretically, before they get discharged. I'll talk about resection when we get to the pancreas. So here's civilian duodenal mortality using any and all the operations I've illustrated. In Juan's current problems in surgery, the top line mortality from 68 to 1990 was substantial at 17%, usually not from the duodenum. More recent series are as listed in the Schroppel article, if you leaked from your duodenum repair, your mortality was 20%. If you didn't leak, it was 11%. So it's about a 10 to 15% overall mortality, but the actual cause of the death from the duodenal repair is under 3% in the modern era, which is very reassuring. The pancreas, shared anatomy with the duodenum, it's behind some huge GI structures, like the duodenum surrounded by major named blood vessels. And as all of you know, everything is about is the duct injured or not. Historically, militarily, there's very little data on the pancreas, but you can see the mortality has been substantial historically. Here's what we actually do, and you can go to the bottom line there where Jim Cushman and I did a big review of a thousand patients in the literature, somewhere between a half to three quarters of pancreatic injuries are drained only. Historically, many of them had suture that's hardly ever reported in the modern era. Distal resection, distal pancreatectomy, about 10 to 15, 10 to 17%. And Whipple's and other weird operations are rarely indicated, frankly. So it's very confusing for younger surgeons. You do have to consider the factors in repair, which I'll touch on in a second. And we've gone from just draining pancreatic injuries in the 1950s to the interesting papers in the past 10 years on not even operating, not resecting people with holes in the duct. And I'm still trying to figure those out. What are your factors in pancreatic repair? Blunt trauma, if you don't, again, get a CT early and you miss a transection, like this little girl to the right at the top, they're gonna to get a big fluid collection and then get very sick. And then finally, with the pancreas itself, what part is injured and is the duct or not, again, and do I have an associated duodenal injury? This is a little busy, but if you go to the left part of the graph there, this talks a little bit about the workup for people who have low-grade pancreatic injuries on the CT. And, and Juan Duquesne at uh, Charity Hospital wrote a couple years ago, 
if you really have a good CT, you have just a grade one or two injury and no other injuries in the abdomen, you don't have to operate. And if you don't operate, you don't have to put a drain in. So it's very, very simple if you have patients with isolated injuries. What I've done at surgery for many years was I used to put sutures in, as I mentioned earlier, into cracks in the pancreas that that did not involve the duct. And when we came back, like in people with liver packing and looked at the pancreas, it was always dead under my sutures. And so I started just plugging the holes in the pancreatic parenchyma with omenal viable patches or pedicles, much like we do in the liver. I have no proof that this works, but whenever I do it, I feel better, so I continue to do it. <laughs> now, diagnosing the ductal injury, the most important part of the uh, operation, can actually be done preoperatively in stable patients. You, of course, can follow this algorithm, do CT or MR, and actually get a really good view on whether the duct is injured or not. An invasive way to diagnose a ductal injury in stable patients is, of course, ERCP, which we rarely do in American trauma centers, but this is an interesting report from Cape Town, Africa, South Africa. 25% of the patients had no ductal injury, and of those that did on ERCP, they didn't even operate on them. They just did stents. For those of you who have not done much pancreatic surgery in your real, world, real life, the way to intraoperatively diagnose a ductal injuries is as listed. Fat necrosis everywhere. You have a blunt tear that extends half the width of the gland. You have a central gunshot wound. The parenchyma is all contused, bruised, etc. And though it's impossible to get secret in an American trauma center at one o'clock in the morning, you can actually uh, help you with the diagnosis. Because if you give it intravenously, it really stimulates pancreatic secretion. So this is what it looks like for the surgeons who haven't seen it very much. This is a gunshot wound, and you can see the extensive necrosis, fat necrosis in the lesser sac. I guarantee you this patient has a major ductal injury because 20 minutes after the gunshot wound, this is what it looks like. But I always like to show the picture to the right or the center there. Does this patient have a ductal injury? Hell, nobody knows, right? And my partner, John Birch, actually just drained this patient, didn't do anything to the pancreas, got a pancreatic fistula, and then it closed spontaneously. So if you're never sure what to do, young surgeons, get a drain near the area. You can also do this interesting technique described in the original Adam manual where you inject methylene blue through the gallbladder and the blue dye will extravasate widely at an area of pancreatic ductal injury. I have never done this, but I always thought it was a very cool way to make a diagnosis. So everybody recognizes that most of the time when you have a distal ductal injury, you're gonna do a distal resection. So this would be grade three and some grade four injuries. And you really want to elevate the tail, the splenopancreatic elevation. You want to ligate the splenic artery and vein proximal to where you're going to transect or where the transection is to separate those two suture lines. You're going to either staple or suture the parenchyma and put a drain in. Now, everybody lies about this, but the fistula rate is 28 to 32%. 
If you don't believe me, start measuring amylase every day for about three to five days. And in every trauma center for my entire career, that's what it is. Now, as you know, you can staple or sew the end of the pancreas after the transection. And this is a famous trial in the elective pancreatic surgery community in Europe, the DISPACT or distal pancreas trial, in which it was randomized, controlled. It, it's a classic German trial with so many conditions, but they had two match groups in elective pancreatic surgery, the fistula rate, same, mortality, same. So I had one legendary period over 18 months where I did four pancreatic resections for trauma. I stapled two, they both leaked. I sewed two, they both leaked. So, you know, my dad are very equivalent to this in some strange way. Now, there, there are some people who like to save the spleen, particularly in younger patients, obviously. But in this NTDB study a couple years ago, a lot of patients, but the people who, the patients who got splenic salvage during a distal pancreatectomy were obviously younger, primarily blunt trauma with lower ISSs. Ask me how many spleens I've saved in 40 years. It's a headache. And certainly in an adult patient, it's hard to find the data this is really worthwhile to prevent OPSI. Now this is an interesting operation with a transected pancreas that, as it says at the top of the slide, don't do this. <laughs> I mean, I saw people do this operation, and you can only guess what the fistula rate is when you do two pancreatogenostomies off one root limb. Ron Jones is an old friend of mine, and all of you know Dr. Shires was a famous figure in American surgery. Don't do this. Now, there is another operation for distal transections, and this is called the Letton-Wilson procedure. And this is complete the transection and then bring a root limb up to the distal fragment to save the entire pancreas. I knew Jack Wilson very well, a classic Southern gentleman, had many contacts with him through the Georgia Surgical, and he wrote me a personal letter with a copy of this autograph, and he said, David, the procedure has limited application and is appropriate only when circumstances are right. Wonderful analysis of an unusual operation. I've done five of these in 45 years. And the other big change in pancreatic trauma that's major has been changing the Whipple procedure to a two-stage operation. And the report started as long ago as 1990. And the most recent report out of Harborview in Seattle, 12 two-stage Whipples out of 15 done, only a 13% mortality. In Dr. Asensio's monograph, it was three times that, two and a half times that, 33%. So you can do the resection the first night, stabilize the patient, correct the coagulopathy, and bring them back. The last one of these I did was, was uh, Jamie Coleman, who's in the audience. And this patient was so unstable after being shot by the police that we ended up doing it in three stages, no less. So finally, I mentioned earlier that there is now this interesting uh, series of articles. One is listed here with a non-resectional approach. There's a big hole in the duct in the middle of the pancreas 
And you can see they've actually compared whether to resect it, which we usually do, versus non-resection. And for grade three and grade four pancreatic injuries in this paper, mortality is the same, and I'm absolutely perplexed by this and do not understand it. But some people are not operating on these anymore. And finally, abdominal vascular, dear to my heart. Please remember that if you take care of patients with gunshot wounds, one quarter to one fifth will have injury to a named vessel. There are a lot of presentations. Classic hematoma, better to have that. Hemorrhage, both together, or rarely thrombosis. And I'll simply remind you that if you're resuscitating a patient with a gunshot wound and the pressure keeps falling despite all your blood transfusion, they've either got the liver, multiple mesenteric injuries, or an abdominal vascular structure that's injured. The interest in this topic started in the late 1800s when the president of the French Republic, Sadie Carnot, was stabbed by an assassin. It went through the liver and there were two holes in the portal vein and the patient died on the operating table. This is one of the more famous operations in trauma and Lapine wrote several months later expressing the concerns, why couldn't this be, be fixed, right? So I thought when I got George Macon's book from World War I, there'd be all sorts of reports on gunshot wounds to abdominal vessels. And I was wrong. There was just a couple. And here's a patient who was shot in the aorta in World War I. Nobody operated on him. They still had that problem. And he died. And then I looked at all the military conflicts in the past for the United States. And these are abdominal vascular injuries from Makins, Dr. DeBakey, Carl Hughes, and Norm Rich. And you can see that before body armor, if you got shot in the abdomen and you had a hole in your aorta or your iliacs, you didn't do very well, and that's why there are so few reported here. Now what happened in the 1960s and 70s is people started getting interested in trauma and abdominal vascular injuries. And this is a classic paper from Emory where the late Garland Purdue and Bob Smith just listed all the vascular injuries they knew about in the abdomen with no description of really how to fix them, right? There were all, all these big pre-database reports but not much real information. So I picked an area I've always been interested in. This is a left medial visceral rotation. And I went back historically, and sure enough, Astley Cooper said, I think I could, with a little difficulty, have reached the aorta by turning up the peritoneum without dividing it. And what you see there is the famous picture of him ligating the abdominal aorta for an iliac aneurysm. The patient, of course, died, but he, he, in retrospect, thought about the difficulty he had getting his finger around the aorta going transperitoneally and talked about, can I go behind this? This was actually mentioned in a textbook in 1887, medial mobilization. And the two people who really popularized this around the world, if you will, were the late Charles Robb from Great Britain, who reported on this with upper abdominal elective vascular surgery, and of course, Dr. DeBakey, who reported on this when he first started doing thoracoabdominal aneurysms. From what I can tell, Bill Blaisdell and his colleagues at San Francisco General 
were the first to actually illustrate this in a paper way back in 1969. So for the younger surgeons in the room again, your exposure for a trauma patient with a big hematoma above the mesocolon, a midline supramesocolic hematoma, is in many people's minds still best to do a left medial visceral rotation where all the organs illustrated are moved to the midline, the embryologic midline. What are the pros? This exposes the entire aorta, the diaphragmatic portion, the supraceliac portion, and the visceral portion. Gives you great exposure once you get the lymphatics and the ganglia off. The con is it takes forever when your patient's bleeding. So you really would prefer to do this just in the hematoma patients. I've been lying about how long it takes to do this for 40 years, but I think in the last edition of our textbook, I, I went from five to five to seven minutes, which is probably okay. There's a risk to the spleen if you're a heavy-handed surgeon when you're lifting everything up. And when you fold all the vessels, like the renals, you actually, when you move them up, you create a fold in the aorta so it gets harder to fix the aorta. The other way to expose a midline supramesocolic hematoma is to do an extensive Coker maneuver. And you can see the labels on the slide, the C-loop, the pancreas, and now you can see the aorta. All general surgeons know how to do an extensive Coker. The problem is you're not totally high enough in some patients. You're between the origins of the celiac and the SMA. So, I'm sorry. Now, one of the other questions that gets asked often of people who do a lot of this stuff is, well, if I put a prosthetic graft in the iliac or the aorta and there's small bowel contamination, aren't they all going to get infected? And the correct answer is we don't know. There's so few graft replacements, for example, of the aorta, either supramesocolic or inframesocolic, we don't know. But I can tell you there are a lot of options in the, in the, in the modern era for how to handle an infection in any of these large vessels that are grafted, such as the aorta, SMA, or iliacs. And they're all listed there for you. Now, there are two caveats about abdominal vascular injuries that I want the younger surgeons in the room to understand. You can't ligate the superior mesenteric artery approximately zones one, two, or three without at some point doing a bypass to the small bowel and colon. The upper left figure with an arrow there, this is a patient I'm doing a Whipple on for a gunshot wound. The superior mesenteric artery is thrombosed. You can sort of see some vascular tapes there. And in the middle of my Whipple, the medical student holding a retractor said to me, Dr. Feliciano, when you do Whipples, does your small bowel always turn black? And, and I'll be honest with you, I did not notice this, so the student gets a good grade. How's that? <laughs> I put a graft in, a PTFE graft, right where those vessel loops are, and 31 days later, the pancreas leaked on my graft, blew out, and the kid died on return to Bentob. I learned a real lesson. So the other three pictures are how we now do it. In the bottom picture, Instead of doing a reconstruction in a very sick patient, we put a shunt in the proximal SMA immediately inferior to the pancreas. 
took him back to surgery the next day, and the top picture to your right is the back of the small bowel mesentery, and I'm exposing the SMA. You can see the aorta in the lower quadrant there. And then the very bottom picture is a graft from the aorta to the back of the SMA, far away from an upper abdominal pancreatic injury, and we've saved this patient's life and bowel. The other arteries that you should never ligate without adding a bypass at the first or second operation is, of course, the iliacs. In Dr. DeBakey and Simeone's series from World War II, ligating the external iliac artery and ligating the common iliac artery resulted in amputations, often hip disarticulations, of nearly or greater than 50%. The data in the middle there are from Chad Ball and myself from Grady. Uh, look what happens when you ligate either of these vessels. Fasciotomy, nearly 100% amputation, same 50% mortality, three out of four. Smaller numbers, but shunt patients, half as many fasciotomies, no amputations, and many less deaths. So this is a critical vessel like the SMA. Don't panic, things are bad, bleeding everywhere. Just get control, put a shunt in, and then bring them back when you're able to do some kind of bypass. How about the uh, inferior vena cava? A little inset above the first picture is an article from 1916, and Captain Taylor really gets credit for putting the Judd Alice clamps on the cava when it was bleeding like snot. None of us in the modern era invented this. This was over 100 years ago. Sharon Henry's paper shows the technique of a big tear in the cava, can't necessarily get clamps on, quickly fold the cava together with a series of Judd Alice clamps. How about ligation? The ligation of the cava is something that has been done but never really had been studied. We looked at it at Grady, and our survival was 40%. These are people absolutely exsanguinating. Uh, the patient here, as you can see, has a combination of clips and ties on the cava. Uh, it'll stop the bleeding, but you also really impede a venous return, needless to say. Technical point for the uh, younger surgeons in the room, you can't just throw a silk tie on the cava when it's full. So put clamps around the area you want to tie, collapse it, and then put a zero or two of silk. And again, we had a reasonable survival, and of the 10 people who survived, we had long-term follow-up on eight. None of them had edema of their lower extremities, but that's another lecture. And finally, the technology evolution over the last 100 years. I previously mentioned the bridge balloon to tamponade the cava, particularly the retropatic cava, to give you time to think, get exposure, and do a proper repair. And then in highly select patients with a CT showing hemorrhage, if you will, or a tear in the iliac veins, the endosurgeons can now get a stent up there and avoid operation if you're convinced there are no other injuries. Well, these are the survivals, as you know, from our textbook uh, in 2021. The interesting thing that you will almost immediately notice is the historic survivals 
were better in some cases than those after 2000. And some of them are the same, but some of them are worse. And we did study this at one point and found that EMS was bringing us dead people, right? And that'll lower your mortality if you operate on them. I mean, that was the only thing we could figure out. We were better as surgeons. We had better massive transfusion. We had quicker EMS travel time, and that was probably the major factor. But if you look at the figures excluding suprarenal aorta, a major arterial injury in the abdomen can result in a survival of about 50% in most circumstances in a good trauma center. How about the veins? Same issue, we've had a real decrease in survival in a lot of centers and it's based on the quality of the patient who's being brought to us. But again, it's probably about 10% or so, five, 10% higher survival for veins than for abdominal arteries if you get a patient who still has vital signs when you take them to the operating room. So I'm deeply honored to give this Excelsior Surgical Society Churchill Lecture. I really appreciate seeing so many friends and former trainees in the room and I thank you for your attendance today. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.